You are listening to The Concierge on Monocle Radio, coming up on today's programme. We shine a light on the secret spots and travel rhythms of Paris and put your questions to our concierge service. We then travel to Porto to get a little giddy exploring the world of wine tourism. Wine and Travel Week confirmed that hospitality in the cellar is a winning formula as discerning travellers look to pair their love of the grape with great food and lodging. And the sixth generation owner of the Bar or Lac, Andrea Kracht, is the subject of our travel interrogator. Then it's off to Washington to try out Waldorf Astoria's freshest flagship hotel. The hotel was beautifully crafted to be this area of escape, that luxury area of escape with that historical reference. The decor, the wood features, the paneling, that's all original to the historic post office. That is all coming up on The Concierge in association with Allianz Partners. Welcome to The Concierge on Monocle Radio with me, Robert Bowne. And this week, we start the show in Paris. And for the very best Paris has to offer, we're joined by Monocle's favourite Parisian concierge, the head concierge at the Mandarin Oriental. And that man is Adrian Moore. Adrian, wonderful to have you on the programme. Welcome to The Concierge. And can you paint a little bit of a picture of Paris? I presume spring is springing at the moment, Adrian, and you're, you're presented with a beautiful scene. It's a gorgeous day. It's, it's actually the most beautiful day of the year. It's 24 degrees today, full sunshine. The terraces are packed with pretty young things. The flowers are in bloom and people on the quaysides chugging beer and quaffing rosé. <laughs> nary a burning poubelle in sight. I love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. OK, so before we get into the concierge stuff, Adrian, we are going to ask you, which we ask most of our guests on this programme, where their passport was last stamped. Well, I don't think it was stamped because um, I've been in mostly Europe this year. I've done a lot of Spain, <laughs> a lot of Madrid and, and Barcelona, and I've been to London a few times where they will or won't stamp your uh, your passport, depending on the on where it's from. But you know, with the UK, they actually do stamp it when you go back into into the UK. Uh, but as I'm a French resident, I can choose to have it stamped or not. I'm glad that you, of all people, can waft through, <laughs> waft through customs like that. So I mean, we presume, I mean, you've talked about the wonderful season of spring, which, which is kind of sounds like it's starting full scale in Paris at the moment. Adrian, does the sort of travel, does that ebb and flow through the year, the kind of types of guests that you get and the types of things that they want, even in a sort of city of constancy like Paris? I find that a lot of people, uh, the way that people are traveling is, of course, has been affected by uh, the, you know, the post-COVID situation. What I've found is that the guests seem, they need a lot more care. There's a lot more last minute requests. A lot of the restaurants and places we deal with, you only get a table if you have the secret WhatsApp number or if you have a special contact. There's lots of mix of, of business and pleasure now. People are staying longer. People are, are a bit more impatient, to be very honest. Um, we're seeing Lots of requests for uh, booking, uh, you know, uh, rendezvous with Chanel and Goya and Hermes and all this, which people never asked for before, you know. They're a lot, lot more worried, but that also gives us the opportunity to sort of reassure them and, um, and create, a, create a relationship with our guests. Yes, it's an interesting thing. That sort of idea of changing guest behaviour, Adrian. People have probably got very used to everything being at the touch of a button, the press of an app or something. Does this take away from your business or for the level of guests that you're looking after? Are they reassured by a smart gentleman with a little black book knowing exactly where to send them? Yeah, for, for sure. But I mean, the, the one big challenge that we have is that uh, people are um, communicating with WhatsApp and email and 
and sometimes we don't even see them. I mean, the guests are, you know, uh, since the advent of all these uh, different apps and, you know, the proliferation of food intelligence and all that, people are already doing the work that we could normally help them with before they even come to the hotel, if you know what I mean. And a lot of the times they're not even picking the places that are right for them. You know, they're going the best of lists. It's, it's so important, to it's primordial to create a relationship, you know, with the concierge. But often people don't even know what they, they actually want, you know. I'm going to imagine that someone has pinged the concierge bell. So I'd love to get from the horse's mouth, um, <laughs> as it were, a couple of red hot recommendations for restaurants right now in Paris and a couple of wonderful bars. If I was going to come to Paris maybe in the next month and was staying the weekend. One of my favorites, and it's just opened up a few weeks ago, is a place called Kaito. And the Kaito is actually a hand roll restaurant sort of um, designed uh, after the uh, sort of stand-up sushi spots in the Oskiji market in Tokyo. And it was opened by Taku Watanabe, who um, just got a Michelin-starred uh, restaurant at, uh, I think his restaurant is called Taku Mayfair. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was also um, here in Jin at Paris, we had a Michelin star. And he completely turned the tables and opened this like five-space stand-up on the counter with amazing rolls. His thing is rolls. So, I mean, you can get... Uh, you know, crab salad with mayo and the, the rice is flavored with, a, you know, a bunch of different rare Japanese vinegars. And then you've got another place, which is a completely old school, just on the edge of the Marais, called the Bistro des Tournelles, which is a really fantastic place. Small, crowded, filled with a sort of a local good-looking foodie crowd. Then you get uh, Boeuf Bourguignon or, mark my words, the best croque-monsieur in Paris. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that, that is, uh, that's something that's impossible for most of our listeners to resist. And what do we wash it down with and where, Adrian? My favourite bar in Paris, and it's just around the corner from uh, Bistro Tournelle, is a place called the Cambridge Public House. It's kind of a French Anglo uh, staff. It's designed like an old-school comfy pub, but it's actually one of the top sort of high-end cocktail bars in Paris. It really fantastic beautiful well our listeners i can hear the sound of scribbling nibs um and just finally one last question for you which i definitely have always wanted to ask you specifically adrian is how do you keep in with restaurateurs with bar managers even staff at galleries to get that sort of last minute curator tour for one of your top guests how do you encourage them to stay in your good books well it's it's all about staying in the flow one of the primary uh personal traits for concierge is to be perpetually curious you have to be curious you have to be a people person you have to like to please people i mean whether in your own private life or or, or hotels you know i mean you've got to be sort of a people person you know if, if you're not if you don't love what you're doing i mean uh, there's no way you're going to be a great concierge you'll crash and burn after a few weeks <laughs> <laughs> um tips from the very toppest of the toppermost um adrian lovely having you on the concierge today that was adrian moore from the mandarin oriental in paris now to our very own little black book the part of the program where we look to our correspondents around the world to answer your questions the concierge desk is open for business. And first up on the line from New York City is Jody Jackson. Jody, thank you for being a concierge listener and for providing a question to us. How is New York City this morning? It's nice. It's still cold. We cannot seem to get spring started here, but it's not snowing, so I'll take that. <laughs> well, it sounds like a fine time to be going on a spring holiday then, Jody. And what is your question for our correspondents? So my husband and I are going to Barcelona for a week and thought we would venture outside the city to another part of Spain for a few days. I'm wondering, do you have any suggestions 
We like to hike. We like culture and love to learn. We don't need any place by the water because we'll be taking a Mediterranean cruise the following week. So thank you so much. We'd appreciate any suggestions you have. Perfect, Jodie. Well, there is no one better place to answer this than Monocle's correspondent in Spain, Liam Aldous, who joins us now on the line from Ibiza. How's it going, Liam? Are you cold and bedraggled and unslept, or are you the handsome Aldous that we all know and love? I'm the, definitely the latter. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. So I'm glad, I'm glad uh, Ibiza hasn't quite kicked off for this spring. So Jodie's got a fantastic trip lined up. Where are you sending her on her way after she's been to Barcelona? Well, I would say four days is just enough time to see the city of Barcelona. But if you do want to get out of the city and not spend too much time on the road, you could either go south to the town of Garaf, which is a nice little beach town. Garaf is a small little beachside town. Soho Beach House Barcelona has a really nice place there where you can also stay, but you can also eat. And there's lots of other little seafood places right on the water with these amazing picturesque beach houses. Or you could go north to the town of Caracas, which is where a lot of the well-heeled Catalans go for their summers. They've got a lot of beach houses up there. It's also the town that Salvador Dali had a house where he used to live, a little bit north of the town. So if you take a car, drive up north, you can see this beautiful town. It's said to be one of the most painted towns in Spain because it's so picturesque. And you can also take a visit to his house, which is like a whole other whole other world. It really shines a light on his mindset, Salvador Dali. Beautiful. Thanks, Liam. And are these places relatively easy to kind of navigate? Jodie was considering getting on a train. She might hop in a hire car. Are these places easy to get to? Well, Garaf is definitely easy to get to. You can catch a train and it's not very far. I think it's only 30 minutes. And so it's, you know, you can go there for the day, even if you don't want to stay in the town. Cadaqués, you definitely need a car because there's a really kind of steep, curvy road to get down. There's no, definitely no train service that goes there. So you can either get a car service to take you, which would be a lot more comfortable, or you can drive down yourself. And that way you can explore the regions around there as well. Beautiful stuff, Liam. Thank you. Very jealous. I want to go on Jody's holiday and I'll certainly be... Uh... <laughs> I'll carry your bags in Ibiza very soon, whenever it suits. (laughs) Thanks, Liam. It sounds wonderful, doesn't it? I think Liam paints a wonderful picture himself with words. Jodie Jackson in New York, thank you very much for tuning in and for providing a question to the concierge. And next up, we have Danelle from London with this question for the concierge service. I'm really excited to be visiting Istanbul again this May for a week. On my first visit some years ago, I fell in love with this vibrant place. What would you recommend for my second visit, especially as I prefer off-the-beaten-track locations and hidden gems only locals would know about? Many thanks. And who else would we call to provide an answer but Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith? Hi, Danelle. Welcome back to Istanbul. Since you're coming in May when the weather's just getting nice, I'd recommend that you spend some time in the city's outdoor areas. If you come over to the Asian side, there are plenty of corniches. You can bring a camping chair, bring some beer and spend the day like Istanbulus do. Or if you have a bit more time, get on one of the ferries, go to one of the Prince's Islands in the Sea of Marmara. It's about an hour from central Istanbul and you'll find a completely different atmosphere. There's no cars. It's really relaxed. You'll find plenty of restaurants and plenty of nice beaches to spend the day on there. Thanks to Danelle in London for her question. And of course, thanks to Monocle's correspondent in Istanbul. That was Hannah Lucinda Smith's answer. Thank you very much, everybody. And if you have a question for the concierge, write to us. Send us your questions at concierge at monocle.com. 
www.fairplaylive.com. Next up, it's a bit of a fair play. We are off to Portugal now for Fair Play, our section of the programme where we explore the conventions shaping the world of hospitality, by which we mean mesoplats and convention halls rather than social mores. This time we attend the inaugural edition of the Wine and Travel Week in Porto, where wineries and wine regions from around the world tailor trips for travellers keen on quaffing great vintages while relaxing in the sun, sleeping it off more like. Monocle correspondent Ivan Carvalho dropped in on the event and he brings us this report. People's thirst for wine and travel is on the up. Last year, the global enoturismo market reached nearly 7 billion euros, and estimates show it doubling in size in the next five years. One country eager to take advantage of this growth is Portugal, a nation with the world's highest wine consumption and where tourism is booming. Given these promising numbers, Editors at Portuguese Wine Monthly, Revista de Vinhos, decided to set up the Wine and Travel Week Fair in Porto. Hosted in the city's former customs house on the banks of the Douro, Portuguese wineries and foreign wine appellations from Bordeaux to Rioja came together to show off their latest travel offerings. Portugal is looking to promote the nation's wealth of appellations. Philippe Silva works for the country's state tourism agency. Portugal is geographically a small country, but from north to south you can experience a great variety of gastronomical experience that matches perfectly well in pairing with the local wines. So the vinhos verdes uh, that you, you can have in the very north of Portugal have a different contrast, a, a completely different contrast with the, with the flavors that you'll be experienced from the gastronomical experience and from the wine experience, for instance, with a region in the central of Portugal or even in the Alentejo region, which is in the central south of Portugal. Beyond popular wine tours, like river cruises on the Douro, there were booths promoting the Lisbon wine region and producers like Adega Mai, with its modern winery with upscale restaurant and tasting room, where travelers can sip its Atlantic-influenced vintages. The Algarve region in the south is also vying for attention. Philippe Caldas de Vasconcelos owns the Morgado de Quintão winery. The Algarve is Portugal's destination for sun, right, and, and beach. What we're seeing now and what we're experiencing here, having conversations at the fair, is that people are coming to the Algarve now and in the future will come for the slowness of pace, for wine, for food and for gastronomy. And that's a big opportunity for us in, in, the, in, the, in the wine world. So I think that's, that's really what we're trying to focus on is how to build an offering that brings people a slower pace, beautiful surroundings, great food, great wine, and combine that with Algarve's already very prominent place in the travel industry. Now, Philippe, you already offer lodging at your winery, but you're now thinking about a hotel project, so you really feel there's massive potential here. Yes, we have three vineyard cottages with the little swimming pools in, amidst the vines. We feel like there's a um, big opportunity to build a project that is not about size and it's not about scale, but it's about bringing people closer to nature while enjoying a glass of wine that's made you know, on premise. and and really actually creates experiences where people can get involved in the work, can get involved with, with what's going on at a farm, but at uh, you know, 40 minutes from an international airport. 
Morgado de Quintown's 300-year-old estate, which has won prizes for its wines recently, already has plans to upgrade its accommodations. Private tour companies were also active at Wine and Travel Week. One was Bottle Stops, a company doing specialty tours in German wine regions. Bottle Stops owner, Jerome Heinz. My business is taking people on very individual tours, customized tours through German vineyards. I realize that people are looking much more now for personal experience, understanding the intrinsics of Rieslings, for instance, we are famous for in Germany. We pair our tours with food, which means actually not the typical Wurst experience, but we look really at high-end German food experience. That includes traditional food, but also um, modernized versions of German classics. One company connecting travelers with wine tourism in a new way was Lavigne Swiss Wine Therapy, which runs pop-up day spas at wineries. Celine Brogi of Lavigne. Our wine therapy experience is very unique as it's a ritual that is directly in the vineyard. I mean, it starts with a bath, you know, a hot bath that is in the vineyard. So just the beautiful panorama is very unique. And then the experience is followed by a scrub, a wrap and a massage. And this is also a real experience in the sense that we are using byproducts of the vine, which are usually thrown away or composted actually by the winemaker. So we use very natural products from the direct surrounding vineyards. From private winery tours and tastings to up-and-coming hotel projects, Wine and Travel Week confirmed that hospitality in the cellar is a winning formula, as discerning travelers look to pair their love of the grape with great food and lodging. For Monocle in Porto, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Thank you to Ivan Carvalho in Porto. Tough gig, Ivan. And do stay with us on the concierge because up next it is the travel interrogator. Andrea Kracht is the sixth generation owner of the Bauer or Lack, one of the world's most iconic luxury hotels with a 175-year history. This week, here's the subject of our travel interrogator, carried out by Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule. They sat down together in Zurich to talk about running family-owned businesses and why his customers keep coming back. What are they looking for, though, whether it's the first time they've checked into the Burak or it could be the 500th time they've checked in with you as well? Because also I see so many repeat customers. Are they looking for what is still perceived as Swiss service, a Swiss five-star experience? Are they looking for the feeling of a family-owned property, which, of course, is at the top end of the market? What's drawing that guest <clears throat> time and again? I think we are dealing with a high-end clientele and if they come the first time, you know, they travel to Zurich for whatever reason, there are many ways they make their reservation. We have, I believe, over 140 or 150 distribution channels. So there are so many channels how you get someone staying with you. But I think the first intent is for a guest traveling to Zurich, you know, what do I like to expect from a hotel? And of course, if price is not so important, it's always important. 
But if you tend to be ready to pay a higher price for a good product, you end up with, I don't know, three, three four hotels in Zurich, and we are one of the top. I guess that's why... And we have a good reputation. We are there since six, uh, now seven generation, my, my daughter. So I believe that it's our reputation. And because we are family-owned business, we are very conservative with prices. If you compare our prices to other luxury hotels around the big cities around the world, we are very conservative and I would say very fair towards the repeat guest. So at the end to your question, yeah, it's if somebody travels to Zurich and wants to stay in a, in a high-end luxury hotel, he has a good chance to end up at the Borlach. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are wondering how are travel patterns changing and who's traveling? Because, of course, you saw this surge. Many people said, okay, China's gone. A lot of the Asia market was gone for a while. But then just America seemed to fill in everything that Americans got out in the world very quickly. Have you seen the guest profile changing, and certainly from a Burlak perspective, but also from when you, when you think about also your role in relationship with leading hotels as well? Well, it changed a little bit in that sense that we had, before pandemic, less Americans. And after pandemic, the American market uh, rose again to, uh, I don't know the percentage, but we... We used to have at one time in the 90s and early 2000s up to 20% Americans and it went really down below 10%. And now we are, I would say, about around 15%. And among the whole leading hotels, the whole leading hotels market, over 50% of leading hotels reservations is the American market. So we know that the American market worldwide is very important. Just before we, we go, I want to maybe conclude on something which is maybe a cliche, something which is also a promise, and this is Swiss hospitality. And I'm wondering where you see things standing at the moment. I would say, and if you ask me, what is the rating out of 10, I would say it's very high. It's eight or nine, and I'm convinced about it. That's why we have over 30 leading hotels in Switzerland. And each of those hotels, if you stay there, you will have a very high-end service compared to the, you know, all the other countries and leading hotels in those countries. We have a very high-end know-how. We still have this, I don't know if you can call it Swiss hospitality. You can maybe call it Swiss because we have the, these hotel schools. We have the best ones. Most of the staff are coming out of these hotel schools. And it has a little bit this Swiss culture of hospitality, which is so important. And you learn this in the hotel schools here. It comes out of that Swiss culture. And we have this in all our five-star hotels in Switzerland. That was Andrea Kracht speaking with Tyler Brulé. Coming up next, it is The In Crowd. Just like the Monocle team, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences. Allianz Partners' reputation for excellence and the continuous drive to innovate means the business is uniquely equipped to accompany its partners and customers with their ever-changing travel needs. So get out there 
and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. Allianz Partners, get the most out of your experience with peace of mind. Time now for the in-crowd, where this week we're off to Washington, D.C. and the old post office building, one of the grandest spaces in Washington, complete with a clock tower that makes it the second tallest building in the U.S. capital. It was converted into a five-star Trump International Hotel in 2016, just before the former U.S. president took office. The hotel was sold off last year to the Hilton Group and is now operated by its Waldorf Astoria brand. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermack was given a tour of the Waldorf Astoria Astoria's newest flagship to explore what has changed. Maybe, hopefully, they get rid of some of the gold. Good evening, welcome to Wall of Astoria, Washington. This is my pleasure. Excellent, how are you, sir? Hello, how are you? My pleasure. Checking in? Yes. Uh, my name is Seni Giray. I am the general manager of the Waldorf Astoria in DC. Tell me first of all where, where we are at the moment. So we are actually on the lobby space, which used to be the space where the postal workers sorted the mail back in 1899 as this hotel was opened as a post office. The steel structure that you see here uh, was actually the first steel structure that was used in DC. It goes all the way down to the foundation as well as all the way to the top floor. But uh, we still have the original space here where we entertain our guests. As you see, it becomes a great melting pot. And if you go back into the history of the Waldorf Astoria hotels, like the one in Park Avenue in New York City, there is actually a peacock alley where the bar is, and there is a clock in that area. It always has been the meeting point in the hotel. And I think we don't necessarily have to bring a clock because we actually have the clock tower right above us. So it was such a natural transition for us to be able to pick up this property. As I always say, we took a good foundation and all our efforts are to try to see how we can improve it even better. And I think that process is still ongoing. I can't say that it is fully complete because, as you can imagine, it ran as a Trump international for about seven years. It is definitely well-rooted and uh, we just need to make sure that as the time moves on, we moved with the time and making sure that our Waldorf Astoria identity and our culture settles in. We have about 38,000 square footage of meeting space. But these two especially are one of my favorites. The one that I'm gonna take you right now is called the uh, Lincoln Library. So this used to be the registry office back in the days. And now it's grander application as you can see with the decor. People just, just love the, the history in this room. Um, obviously the association with Abraham Lincoln, as you know, he was assassinated a couple blocks away from here at the Fort Theater. This room is probably the busiest one that we sell throughout the whole year. So this is the townhouse. As you can see, it's quite a location. It's in the corner of the 11th and Pennsylvania Avenue. So currently we're standing in the lower level, the living room section. We have direct access to Pennsylvania Avenue. To the right here, we have a conference table or a dining table. Just have to go up the historical stairs here. I'll go up first and then a sitting area between the two rooms uh, to our right is the master bedroom and then uh, by going up these stairs you come up to the second bedroom as I call it maybe the kids room 
right across Pennsylvania Avenue. Yes, you can, this would be fantastic for an inauguration. Right, <laughs> especially sitting at that desk. Uh, yeah, we have about uh, several of these turrets that goes all the way up to the top of the building. And as you can imagine, all the every room is slightly different because of all these unique alterations that was put in place uh, since they were all office spaces um, as they converted it. We were able to actually see this beautiful usage of the um, spaces. Is there a concrete example, something you decided needed to be changed in the hotel or adapted in order to sort of fit the Waldorf Astoria brand? The restaurant space, for example. Now we have recently opened Jose Andres's Bazaar in February. He's well admired, not only for his culinary skills, but overall his humanitarian aids throughout the, uh, the world. I think he has a quote that says, that like the longer tables that we're trying to create so to bring everybody in. That is something that we try to do in this building as well. I sometimes say that we have the Swiss flag on the building. It's open to everybody from any background, any religion, any color. So I think Jose Andres's restaurant probably will be the best example to showcase that. I understand also that Jose Andres rejected having a restaurant in this hotel. That's what I was sold at the time, yes. How did that come about that he decided now with the new owners to open a restaurant here? That was uh, formulated before my arrival, but I know it was mutually seeked after both from the ownership side of it as well as from his side, from what I was sold feels like quite a symbolic thing, if I may say. <laughs> I guess you can say that, yes. <laughs> My name's Jennifer Geronda. I'm the lead concierge at Waldorf Astoria, Washington, D.C. You know, we have a, as you said, a wide variety of guests, from your average guest who's just traveling to D.C. for the first time to the top celebrity politicals that are coming to D.C. for events and, and meetings and I mean, there's literally everyone has stayed here. I have to wonder if there are some who kind of come to you and say, I, I, I didn't come to this hotel before, I'm coming now, that kind of thing. Was there a change in that sense in, the, in some of the clientele? A hundred percent. When it was the Trump Organization, and, and I'm happy to say this, people would ask me, oh, are you Republican? Did you have to be Republican to work here? You know, did you have to say who you voted for? And I always would get a little laugh out of it. And then I respectfully tell them that I don't talk about politics at home. And no, I didn't have to diverge my political status to work here. But nowadays, people do come up to us and they say, well, I didn't stay here when it was Trump Hotel. I said, I'm so sorry, you're missing out. It was an incredible experience. It was Forbes five-star rated, which there are only two Forbes five-star hotels in the Washington, D.C. area at the time. And it was an incredible experience. And I would always tell them, I'm so sorry you missed out on that. Is there something that stands out to you in terms of the transition and how this place has changed? Not too much. I tell guests, really, the thing that changed the most was the sign on the building. The hotel was beautifully crafted to be this area of escape, that luxury area of ex escape with that historical reference. The decor, the wood features, the paneling, that's all original to the historic post office. And what Waldorf has done is just kind of taken that and amplified it with different programming. I mean, the cherry blossom exhibit in our lobby right now is phenomenal. 
There's so many stories in this building that is very similar to some of our heritage with the Waldorf Astoria in New York. First of all, being such a diplomatic hotel. Uh, New York obviously was feeded by the UN, uh, United Nations building being a couple blocks away. And here we have the White House, we have the Capitol right in between the two. Uh, so there's a lot of diplomatic delegations that come in here uh, just for that purpose. So we're really happy to be able to be in the center of the universe in that sense. We feel like this has all the aspects of being a flagship property for our brand itself as well. That's all for today's programme. Thanks to our special guest, Adrian Moore. Our producer was Tom Webb, and our researcher was Monica Lillis, our studio manager, Callum McLean. And if you have a question for the concierge, do drop us a line on concierge at monocle.com. Do join us next time, and we'll be dining and hiking in Portofino. I've been Robert Bounds, and thank you very much for tuning in. And of course, happy travels.